Eric Estep here. One of my favorite parts of being a NASCAR fan is collecting diecasts. It's how I got my start on YouTube, actually. To me, a room is not complete until it features shelves of NASCAR diecast cars. It's as good a time as ever to continue your collection or begin an all-new one by pre-ordering your favorite driver's 2022 next-gen diecast at LionelRacing.com or at any authorized Lionel retailer. Lionel is the official diecast of NASCAR, and don't miss Lionel Racing's NASCAR Authentics diecasts at a Walmart or Target near you. Not only is Lionel the official diecast of NASCAR, but they're also official supporters of the Out of the Groove Podcast Network. So what are you waiting for? Head to LionelRacing.com to order your favorite driver's 2022 diecast. To those living in Darlington County in the early months of 1949, they were certain the old man had honestly lost his mind. Harold Brasington fired the engines of his heavy construction equipment and began clearing brush left behind as well as peanut vines and discarded cotton plants over a 70-acre field with the intention of building a racetrack basically out in the middle of nowhere. Was it the heat? Had he been working too hard? No. He had been to Indianapolis Motor Speedway to see the Indianapolis 500 with his father some 15 years earlier and fell in love with auto racing. Speed and the smell of engine exhaust was in his blood and building his own speedway was his best way to bring auto racing to rural South Carolina. So how did he acquire the land for such an advantageous venture? Well, it came from a friendly game of poker. The landowner, Sherman Ramsey, told Brensington, the land is yours under one condition. You can build your track, but you have to save my minnow pond. I have to have my minnows to fish. Bresington honored that request with a handshake. He cut one end of the speedway a bit short and created the toughest first and second turns in a whole of motorsports. The original track was 1.2 miles in length and a single ribbon of asphalt that was impossible to pass on. A total of 75 cars started that first Southern 500 on September 4th, 1950, and 25,000 fans came from everywhere to see this thing called stock car racing and figure out what it was all about. Bresington was overwhelmed, having built only 10,000 seats along the front stretch of the Speedway. Since that day when Johnny Mance won that first race using an underpowered number 98 Plymouth, 63 Cup Series races have taken place there. The winner's list reads as a who's who of American motorsports with names such as Petty and Earnhardt, Baker, Turner, Jarrett, Gordon, Labonte, Allison Waltrip. <laughs> Trust me, it's a long list. There's no other track in the, on the planet like Darlington Raceway. When a driver is victorious there, it's a career-defining moment. Two of the very greatest legends in NASCAR will forever be associated with the track. David Pearson for his 10 career victories there and Kyle Yarborough here for his record five career Southern 500 wins. The descriptions, oh, they never change from decade to decade. Tricky, unforgiving, challenging, difficult, but overall rewarding. From former cotton field to an iconic speedway, Darlington, is truly hallowed ground within NASCAR's amazing history.
Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of a Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. I'm Jerry Bunkowski, along with my good buddy, Ben White. This is episode number 62. Man, these these weeks are just clicking by. Over a year, this uh, podcast has been in existence, and I've been fortunate and humbled to be with Ben for the last 30, what's it been, 32 episodes, I think it's been. So, um, you know, we've... uh, We've got we've done a lot of good things over the last um, you know thirty two episodes. We got a lot more good things coming up, and one of the things I've been looking forward to for this particular podcast, Ben, and we're going to talk almost exclusively about it this uh, this whole show, is Darlington Raceway. Of course, the NASCAR Cup Series races there this Sunday, but Darlington is one of the most storied, most historic races uh, on the circuit or tracks on the circuit rather, and. You know, we're going to talk a little bit about the the history of the track, some of the great drivers who have been there, some of the great races, and also how that track has really transformed because it wasn't too long ago that, you know, A, NASCAR took a race away from that track back in, was it 2004, 2005, I think it was, and gave it to uh, Fontana, you know, at the time it was called um, California Speedway, it's now Auto Club Speedway, obviously, and what NASCAR had hoped for never really panned out. And then eventually that race date got moved around a little bit and eventually came back to uh, Darlington. And one of the things that's, I think the uh, one of the biggest things that kind of saved Darlington, if you will. um, And I mean this in, in all with all good intentions was COVID-19 because when that hit in 2020, NASCAR, to its credit, you know, tried to get as many races as they could. They wanted to do a full 36 race season. They did do a full 36 race season. And Darlington became very instrumental in that because they wound up having three races that year. And in having the three races that helped um, kind of pave the way, if you will, to Darlington getting a second race date back. They had two races last year. They have two races this year, and it's going to be that way, uh, the way it looks for the uh, for the long term. So it's good to have two races back at Darlington. But let's let's start, start from the beginning, Ben. I mean, you know, yeah. this was a track that was built very uniquely. Um, it had to be built around a pond, from what I understand the story goes. And that's why it has such an egg-shaped uh, uh, layout, if you will, because they had to avoid building the track, you know, uh, into the pond, if you will. And the pond is still there, as far as I know. I haven't been in Darlington for a few years, but I'm pretty sure it's still there. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. let's 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 start from the beginning, Ben. I mean, you know, built in uh, 1949, opened in 1950. Uh, just a great place to watch a race, and it's got probably two of the most colorful nicknames of any track um, on any circuit. It's called the Lady in Black and the track Too Tough to Tame. So, Ben. Tell us a little bit about Darlington's history and, you know, how it became, you know, uh, it, it, it's kind of a love-hate relationship with drivers because they love racing there, but they hate racing there because it's so hard and difficult. So when you, yeah. when you win there or you have a good finish, you've really done something. Tell us about, about Darlington, Ben. Yeah, sure. Well, here's, here's the way it goes. It's a fascinating story. So let's go. Let me take you. Let me paint you a picture and take you back to 19, actually 19. I want to go back to 1933. It's really where it starts. So a gentleman by the name of Harold Brasington was the builder of the track. And that 1933, he goes to Indianapolis Motor Speedway with his dad. They're just spectators. They want to see the race. He walks out of there. He was among 150,000 people there that year. 
and he's just totally hooked on motorsports. Like so many of us have seen a race, we come out like myself, uh, and I have, I'll share some of that personal history with Darlington a little bit later on that I have, but okay. So he's there, Indianapolis among those people, he comes out saying, I got to do something about motorsports, not sure what, but I'm going to do something. So I think he drove later on a little bit on the beach, uh, down in Daytona. And then he said, ah, this is not for me. So, but I got to do something. Okay. Now let me paint you to this part of the picture. We're talking Darlington, South Carolina. We're talking rural farmland. We're mm-hmm. talking cotton peanuts. We're talking, there's not a lot around the Darlington area, Darlington, Florence, very laid back, very, uh, you know, not, just not a lot going on there. Okay. So this man, Harold Brasington, who has a construction company, thinks, hmm, maybe I can build a racetrack. But we go back just a smidge further back. There's a gentleman by the name of Sherman Ramsey who owns 70 acres. Now, Sherman and Harold Brasington like to play cards with some of their buddies. They're in a barn where they play cards. And as the story goes... If I win this poker game, you're, you'll agree to sell me this land. Okay, so Sherman owns the land. Well, as it turns out, Sherman Ramsey gets as a couple of kings short of his hand. <laughs> and so he says, okay, I agree to sell you this land for basically peanuts, all right? Just fine. But under one stipulation, I'll sell you the land, but you've got to save the minnow pond because the minnow pond is where I get my minnows to fish. You agree to that, right? Yes, I agree to that. And he sold it to him for hardly nothing or maybe nothing. I'm not sure what kind of money he paid for the land Harold did. So he agree, shake hands. Great. Now, this is this is a mid-19, no, actually maybe late 48 or very early 49. That's when this happens. So Harold gets his heavy construction equipment out and he starts clearing off the brush and the things from cotton and peanuts. That's what was there. Now this is, you know, the Hartsville highway in front of the Darlington raceway now. And everybody's like, what in the world is this guy doing? What could he possibly be doing? Well, word spreads through the town that he's building a racetrack. Now put this together in your mind. A racetrack? Really? Here? What in the world is he thinking? (laughs) So NASCAR is relatively new. I mean, we're talking 1949. June 19th of 49 is when NASCAR comes into fruition with a race in basically downtown Charlotte, way before Charlotte Motor Speedway is built. So we're very much in the infancy of of NASCAR. So here's this man out here in the field, says, I'm going to build a racetrack. Okay, whatever. (laughs) Whatever. whatever. Okay, (laughs) go get him some help, people. This guy's he sees a vision of building a racetrack. Okay, so so in a year's time, uh Darlington Raceway opens its gates. Okay, now this is a this is a great thing now because uh he did it. I mean, uh, to the amazement of everyone in Darlington County, Harold Brasington has finally finished what some people were calling uh, Harold's folly, you know, in the same way, uh, you know, that they're thinking, oh my gosh, I mean, he really actually did this. He, he just, he finally accomplished this thing. Okay. So he builds 10,000 seats, 25,000 people come. 
So it's like, what am I going to do with all these people? But great, I'm I'm happy that everyone's coming. Now, so in this time, you're not you don't have chain restaurants, you don't have chain hotels, none of this like we have today. So the people that came, their only option uh, is, and this is September of 1950, so it's not cold. So they go to the park, they go to the public library, they go to churches, anywhere they can find space on the grass. To, to basically camp and spend the night and because they haven't really opened the gates to the track yet. Okay. And so anywhere they can go to a public place is where they're going to stay. So you follow me so far, right? Right, right, right. right. Okay. So again, this is, this is something new. They've, no one has ever seen stock cars race before on a professional level. It was, it was going on in places, but not organized. Mm-hmm. And so, these people are just trying to find a place to sleep. Some people would sleep in backyards. They'd knock on people's doors and say, Hey, can we just camp in your front yard? We're here to see this race that's going to go on at the Darlington Raceway. So this is how this all came about. It's brand new. Uh, not sure what to expect. Now people have come from all over 75 cars, not not 40. Like we see today, Mm -hmm. 75 cars and drivers are going to run this race. So September 4th, 1950, Labor Day Monday, not Sunday, because they had rules that you, then mm. that you couldn't do anything on Sunday. The blue laws. Right? I remember those well. Blue yes. laws, yeah. Right, right. So Labor Day Monday, so everybody is very, very hot at 9, 10 o'clock in the morning. So this is where we are. This is what's about to happen. So I'll let you take it from there. Well, you, know, you got know, other questions. Yeah, well, I do have a question. So... Because NASCAR was in such a was in its infancy. I mean, it was only what a year and a half or, or so old at that point in 1950. The, the the 75 cars that showed up were they kind of a, uh, for lack of a better word, a mishmash or a mix of you know various classes, or were they all one class? I mean, you know, I mean, were they dirt cars primarily? Were they uh, you know were they uh, pavement cars? Were they even race cars for that matter? I mean, were they built specifically for racing? I mean, it, I, that's one thing I've always wondered about that first, or actually the first few uh, seasons of racing there, that how, you know, how did they get all these cars? Because you would think in the middle of nowhere, and, you know, no offense to the folks that live in Darlington or Florence in that area, but, you know, it is kind of in the middle of nowhere. And perhaps to have 75 race cars show up on the, the inaugural day, that says a lot about the the draw that Harold, you know, um, uh, the promotion that Harold did, and the draw that he got as a result, both you know, driver wise and fan wise. I mean, what kind of cars did they have back then, Ben? Believe it or not, they were cars straight out of the driveways of people wanting to enter them. And what what it was, Bill France Senior, founder of NASCAR, had a very simple rule page, not a book. It was a mm-hmm. page. Mm-hmm. And you could run, you know, of course, the Fords, the Chevys, the Plymouths, uh, a Dodge. And, I'm, and I think in that lineup, there might have been some uh, some Hudsons and some Kaisers <laughs> and, right. and those types of cars. But they were strictly stock and you couldn't do anything to them. If you think back to the very first race, at Charlotte, on June 19th, 1949, uh, Glenn Dunaway had tried to get by with using a leaf spring on his car. He won the race and it was illegal and it went to the Jim Roper. And so uh, he was the first winner in NASCAR. So all of those cars 
had to be strictly stocked. There were no roll bars in them to keep the doors closed. A lot of drivers took their actual the belts off their waists, believe it or not, and they uh, taped the or not taped. They they actually put the belts around the the doors and. Mm-hmm made an extra belt hole and, you know, put the belts around the door so they wouldn't open. If you can imagine, that's how primitive they were, but they were out right out of the the driveways. And, you know, a lot of those cars out of the 75, a lot of them got torn up and some were able to get back home. Some weren't. Uh, and they ran the actual tires that uh, uh, were on the cars. I, a quick story just came to mind as I was talking, there was a guy named Frank Monday, who went to a, what they call a, you rent it. It wasn't Hertz or Avis back then. It was called you rent it. And he rented a car to run in, in the race. And, and he actually, I don't remember where he finished, but he actually didn't tear up the car, but he took the car back to this place. And the guy said, Oh my Lord, what in the world has is wrong with the front tires on this car? He said, I don't know, man, this thing was all over the place. You've got a front end alignment issue. He never told him he raced it in the race. <laughs> And they were just, he said, these things are just bald on the, on the front, man. I don't know what's going on, but he wiped the car off really good and made sure he didn't get into anybody with it. And that's a true story. He actually took the car back and said, you got to do, you got to get your guys on the front end of this car. This the, the front end of the alignment is so bad. Look at the tires and the attendants like, yeah, I'll get somebody right on that. And that's a true story. And he took the car back and was very careful not to get it wrecked because he rented it raced it and took it back to the to the place where he rented the car. True story, Frank Mundy. You, know, you said something that, that kind of uh, sparked a, a question in my mind. You said that they had to use belts to keep the doors, you know, essentially closed, locked, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. And that wasn't just unique to Darlington. Back in the day, you know, we're talking in the 40s into the 50s, um, you know, belts were kind of, you know, the guys would take them off their pants, essentially, and wrap it around the door to keep, the, you know, the door frame to keep the door in place. And that was a very common practice for a number of years, wasn't it? Yeah, sure was. Yeah. And I guess eventually they found, went to the closet, found another <laughs> belt and <laughs> the one they, they maybe worn out and cut it down and, and made it to where they used it for that purpose. But uh, yeah, and, and it was very adamant that these cars were strictly stocked. And the reason was they, they uh, the car dealerships uh, or the car manufacturers, I should say, they were very big on this race on Sunday, sell on Monday. So if a Ford won the Southern 540 or 50, 51, 52, made the headlines, uh, and Bill France loved to stretch these things out to get headlines in the newspapers. Like, for instance, qualifying for this race started about uh, August 20, 20th or so. And the race was on the fourth. And the reason they did that, they would qualify seven, eight cars a day. Mm-hmm. They wanted to stretch this thing out and they'd run like eight laps per car. And it took forever. I mean, you know, if you didn't have a beard on the 20th, I mean, on the fourth, what I'm saying is you could grow a beard by the time qualifying was over <laughs> because I mean, no kidding. They used to do that and it would just take forever to get qualifying done. And they did it on purpose. So headlines would just fill the sports pages of these are the Darlington paper and the Florence paper. Uh, and they did it at all the racetracks that way for years uh, because they, in a Charlotte paper, because they wanted headlines, headlines, headlines. Right. And and uh, and I, and here's another thing. Side note, you know, when when Lee Petty won the first Daytona 559, the speculation is that Bill France knew that Lee Petty won that race over Johnny Beauchamp. But they, 
you know, they waited three days in the photo finish and all that to, to terminate it. But think about all the ink he got out of it. Yep. And he's like, I don't know. I don't know. We need to, we need to study the photos and we'll let you know in tomorrow's paper. We still don't know the answer. We'll let you know in tomorrow's paper. Well, he, he kind of knew, but he was getting all this ink in three days, the suspense and everybody's on the edge of their seats who won the Daytona 500. He knew. But by, you know, the race was on Sunday and it didn't crown Lee Petty the winner until Thursday or something. So same thing. And that's why they stretched qualifying out like they did. So, yeah, it's, it's just a marketing thing. And right. that's why they did qualifying the way they did it. Let me ask you this. You know, Darlington, the way it was constructed, you know, uh, to, to work its way around the minnow pond and that, I get that. Um, Darlington has had a couple of... Um, significant transformations of I mean, it you know they they originally started on the back stretch and became that became the front stretch you know, and then they turned around and then the, the the starting line was on the front stretch which is where it is, it's at today they had um you know uh, almost a 20 million dollar um uh capital improvement program back in 2008 and nine i think it was or six, seven and eight something like that which was mm -hmm. ironic because that was like uh, three years after they lost their second race to Fontana. But my point is, Ben, and, and this is a question I have never heard anyone answer. And I don't know if you can answer this. I mean, I, knowing you and being the historian you are, I'm, I'm sure you probably have some kind of a um, an idea of where this all happened. What made Darlington, to, to use their phrase, one of their phrases, their nicknames, the track too tough to tame? I mean, Everybody, you know, uh, um, you ask almost any driver that's been there over the last, fifth, well, it's been, what, 70-some years now, they always say that the walls of Darlington are the hardest they've ever seen at any racetrack. And, I mean, to me, they look just like any conventional uh, wall. I mean, what, what made the track, particularly the walls, so um, hard? What made it so difficult? What made it so, you know, when you hit, you know, and then, then there's, of course, the Darlington stripe that, you know, it's almost mm -hmm. invariable that you're going to hit the wall. What, what, I mean, are the walls really that much harder than at places like Charlotte or other tracks, or is it just kind of uh, part of the marketing, if you will? Well, maybe a little bit of marketing, but, but to go all the way back, uh, Darlington Raceway actually started as a 1.25 mile track, so a mile and a quarter. And the original track, it, literally honestly physically literally was a one groove track in in the in the turns and if you go back and look at some very old footage on youtube you you'll see the cars in single file on in the turns and then they'll try to pass on the straightaways and if you don't hit it just right you got problems going into any of the turns and what used to be turns one and two which are down three and four that was probably the toughest turn because you had to really get on the throttle on the straightaways and you had to, you know, say a Hail Mary prayer going into that turn because it was so tight. And that's where the minnow pond is off of turn two. And if you look at it from above, if you look at any kind of uh, drawings of it, it really does look like an egg. And that's the small part of the egg and one, one and two. Mm -hmm. And the ironic part about it is that when Harold Brasington built the track, then he had no idea that he was building two of the toughest turns in all of motorsports by, by saving that minnow pond. And you can ask any of the older veterans uh, that are still with us, and they'll tell you immediately, if you said, what's one of the toughest racetracks ever, 
it would be Darlington. And, you know, Dale Earnhardt told me this. He said, I have driven that place over and over and over for years and years. As a matter of fact, Dale Earnhardt has the record for leading the most laps at Darlington, even still. And he said the place, you know, you're just cruising along and cruising along. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it's almost like something reaches out and grabs you. And mm-hmm. you're looking backward and you're waving the smoke out of your face. And you say, what happened? You know, why I'm at the bottom of the track, why am I crashed? And it's just something about that place. And as far as the walls go, I don't know. I guess it's because the track is so tricky. And and talking about the Darlington Stripe, uh, for years and years and years, every car that went there, that coming what used to be turn three, which is now turn one, it's so confusing. But that's the turn that you would purposely scrape the wall because that's the only way you could get through it. And we're talking about that 1.25 configuration. It went from, now get this, it went from 1.25 and then it went to 1.375 for about 10 years. And then in 1970, it went to 1.366, which is what it is today. And so it's just an incredibly difficult track to drive and very, very hard to drive. And here's the funny thing about it, Jerry. There's a there's another YouTube video, and it's, it was done in 1977. And it was done by Kel Yarborough when he was driving for Junior Johnson. And he takes you about, I don't know, four or five laps around the track. And he's like, I don't remember exactly what he says in there when he's doing it, but it's an in-car camera. Mm-hmm. And it's so fun to watch because he's like, He's almost saying, this is the best the car has ever been here. And he's all over the place inside the car. I mean, it's, this this feels really good. This is how I get into one and I'm going into two. And, you know, it's nothing like what you see today, but is this is normal about going around Darlington. You're all over the place in the car. And he's like, oh, this is the best it's ever felt. It's like, good grief. I think to see how bad it would be if you didn't have a car that, you know, if it's horrible. I don't remember exactly what it says, but it's just, I'm, I was amazed watching it, how, how he and the in the seat, but again, the seats then were so different than what they are today. And if you go back decades prior to that, you know the, the drivers were even looser than than what they were when Kale was driving. It's like, good lord! I mean, you know, how, how do you stay? And believe it or not, the the guys earlier than that in the fifties, all through the fifties at, at that track, just had a lap belt. If you can imagine, mm-hmm. I mean, those guys were tough as nails to take a car, a passenger car, around that place. For, and those races lasted six hours and six and a half hours to get five hundred laps. And your average speeds back in those days were like eighty point some odd miles an hour. Can you imagine what a long day it would be? Right. Right. And 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 I think the record now. Uh, I think it was set in 04 or something. It was Eric Almarola at 184. So hundred miles had been added to that because of the technology of the better cars. But early on, uh, just races forever and ever and ever and attrition, uh, would take a bunch of the cars out, but, uh, here, here's another quick one for you. And, I, and I'll pass it back to you. Junie Donlevy told me the story, how they would, Back in, in the early fifties, they were they were actually this this happened during the first race, nineteen fifty. Actually, now that I think about it, they they were popping tires like popcorn that day. It was so hot, and so they were running a, a Ford, 
a 50 Ford and they, they ran out of tires. And so they were going into the infield looking for the same type of car that they were racing on the racetrack. And they had some cinder blocks on the back of their cars. They would, the crew guys would take cinder blocks to this particular Ford that they found. They jacked the car up. They put cinder blocks under these passenger cars of the fans. They take the tires off and take them back to the pits. And then they would come in for a pit stop and they'd use these people's tires <laughs> and they put a note on the windshield and say, Hey, sorry, we, this is a number 90 team of junior Donnelly. We borrowed your tires for a little bit. We'll bring them right back. Right. <laughs> this is <Right>. true. <laughs> this is so cool. And so they did that throughout the race to try to make it to 500 laps. They'd run like 50 laps and take them back and get tires from somebody else's car. This is ops. I swear this is all true. So they come up on a guy's car and he said, what the hell are you doing? You're taking my tires. He said, Oh, so sorry. You know, we won't take your tires. No, no, that's okay. You can have my tires. If you can get me a pit pass, I just want to come see my tires. And they said, right, we'll right, pay right, you right. for them. He's like, no, 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 you don't have to pay me. Just get me a pit pass. So they got him a pit pass and he's, I just want to see my tires race. Okay, great. No, no worries. So they took his tires, put center blocks under his car he goes to their pit and he's like, he's in genie said, I'll never forget. The guy was up on the wall and every time his car would come by, he'd take his right arm and just wave him by, you know, and that's the tire set of tires. They finished the race on, but it's like, that's what we did because they were stock wheels, stock tires. And we had popped so many tires. We ran out of tires. It's like, well, <laughs> you know, we'll just borrow some tires. Maybe they won't care, but they would run like, you know, 25, 30, 35 laps. Right. And then, so we wouldn't wear them out. We just take them, come back in the pits and take them back. We just had to remember where we got them. Where we got them. Right. 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 Yeah. Put them back on the guy's car. (laughs) And, and then we go find, we'd send people out. Hey, there's another Ford just like ours over here. This is the green one. What take the tires off the green one, you know, that kind of thing. So I swear these are true stories and that, you know, it's, I wish I could have seen that first, 1950 Southern 500. It had to have been a blast to to be there that day. And again, it was a gosh six hour race. By the time it was all over with, Johnny Matz, a California driver, won the race. Speaking of tires, and he was at a slower pace. And he had the reason he won the, the race was because he had a harder Indianapolis type open wheel type tire. Mm-hmm. That's the reason he won it because his tires held up better than anybody else's. He won, he had a number 98 Plymouth that he won in with. The car was used, uh, actually, uh, he had another car in mind and he wrecked it in a, a race prior to that race. So they used a night number 98 Plymouth. They delivered mail with, and he raced the car and won, won the race. And another true story. I, I got to ask you, then, you, know, you, you, this really intrigues me, especially, you know, guys going to essentially get tires off of another, you know, just a, a, you know, a fan's car, if you will, without the fan even knowing it, jacking them up, putting them on cinder blocks, and then yeah. going to put the tire. I mean, that's illegal. I'm sorry. It is illegal. I mean, it's extremely illegal. How did and, they, I mean, how yeah. did the cops, were the, were the cops involved or not? Or No, no. Nah, no, nah, I mean, the cops were, you know, basically watching the, I guess, watching the gates and, you know, I guess they could have pressed charges and stuff, but. I don't know if they just didn't have enough cops to watch the infield or <laughs> I, I don't know it, you know, by the time, like I say, the, you know, the, the fans maybe were in the stands or some of them didn't care, or maybe they'd had their too much of their favorite beverage. I don't know, but that, 
that came from Junie Donlevy, and I have no reason to doubt him. We lost good old Junie in 2014. He right. he was a team owner, by the way, for people who didn't know that. He um, he ran from 1950, I believe, to 2003. He was a team owner. Had like 865 starts as a team owner mm-hmm. and won one race at Dover, Delaware with Junie Donlevy. Right. Sweetest, neatest guy in the world. Um he was from Virginia, had a distinct Virginia accent. And I loved the one, every time I walked up to Junie at the back of the truck, he said, hello, Mr. White. Hello, <laughs> Mr. White. I just remember that. He was just the sweetest guy in the world. And sadly, we lost him, I think, in 2014, I believe. June 9th, you know, 2014, I think was the day we lost him. You know, the funny thing about Junie, and you kind of raised a good point, you know, I, I obviously have not been covering NASCAR anywhere near as long as you have, but there's only two guys that I can think of that have commanded the respect where everybody, you know, drivers, fellow drivers, competitors, whatever you want to call them, um, they they called him Mr. And then we have Mr. Hendrick. We have Mr. Don Levy. That's the only yeah, two guys I can yeah. think of. I mean, that shows, yeah. I mean, you know, even though, even though Junie as a team owner only won one you know, cup race in, in his ownership career, I mean, he also helped so many drivers, especially young guys, get established. Uh, and, you know, he, he just was, you know, he was there. He was a true epitome of what a sportsman should be. I mean, he always. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, he was always there for everybody. Right. And Ernie Irvin, Ken Schrader, Ricky Rudd, Benny Parsons drove for him. The list, that's a long list of guys who got their start. Not I, Benny didn't, but a lot of guys who wanted a way into the sport started with Junie, and yeah, you know, he was such a gentleman too. And he never got rattled about anything. I want to share a quick story, not related to Darlington, but and then we'll go back to Darlington. But this mm-hmm. is so funny. He there was a guy named Dick Brooks that drove for Junie for years, and uh, there was a time I want to say this happened at Daytona. I don't recall the race it happened in, but I'm pretty sure it was at Daytona. And he would get used parts for various other teams uh, to continue because he was an independent type driver, didn't have a huge amount of money, but had some good sponsorships along the way. Well, Junie uh, had Dick Brooks in his car. He always drove Fords. And they came in for a pit stop, and they got uh, some tires uh, that, that had been used. And so they put the tires on on the 90 car and Dick Brooks was the driver and he Dick radio back to Junie and said, Junie, I don't know what the deal is, buddy, but said these tires, I don't know if I can drive these things. These are all over the place out here. He said, I just thought the handling's way off. I just don't know what's going on. I cannot figure out what's going on. Right. What did you do to these tires? These things are horrible. And about a, a full minute went by and Junie never raised his voice uh, ever. He was just always that Virginia country gentleman type. Right. He said, and Jenny got back on the radio and he said, well, Dick, I don't know what your problem is. Uh, I got those tires from Kale Yarborough. Said he ran laps 200 miles an hour with them for the last 20 minutes. And they, they ran good for him. I don't know why, what you're complaining about. In other words, Kale had already run run them to the point they're just about cords right exactly you know and he's like i've run kale run them already i don't know what you're complaining in other words they were worn out when when dick got them and uh anyway he was just he was just giving dick a hard time he had already worn them out by the time dick got them and uh he was just being funny with him but he said if you don't like them 
just do the best you can with them. That's what he's trying to tell her. But right. anyway, correct me if I'm wrong. And you know, it's ironic that we're taping this week's episode on May 4th, which is the day that the class of 2023 at the NASCAR Hall of Fame uh, is going to be um, announced. Uh, Junie, he is not in the Hall of Fame, if I'm not mistaken. Am I correct? No, I'm pretty sure you're correct. Yes. I mean, that to me is, you know, yes, you know, a lot of the drivers that have, uh, or, you know, uh, drivers, crew chiefs, team owners that have been inducted have been, you know, one of the biggest um, elements of their induction has been their wins. But even with only one win, I'm sorry, Junie Dunleavy, or as everybody else likes to call him, Mr. Dunleavy, you know, even though he lost him eight years ago, I think, you know, posthumously, he deserves some kind of um, induct, you know, induction. I mean, either, you know, um, maybe like one of the, um, what do they call it? The, um, um, what do they call that? Not the regular guys that are inducted, but the, um, the Pioneer, Pioneer Award. Pioneer, yeah. Right, a Pioneer Award. I mean, he would be perfect for that. And, and to me, that's such a incredible um, overlook you know, how, how the, he's been overlooked and he's not in the hall of fame. I mean, I, yeah. I know obviously he has, uh, you know, a lot of relatives and, and family that would just absolutely be thrilled to see his legacy be inducted into the hall of fame. I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, I, I feel that's a, it's a big slight that he hasn't been inducted in. In fact, I don't even know if he's even actually ever even been mentioned um, among the nominees for the Pioneer Award. But, I mean, what are your thoughts about that? Oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, he's in the National Motorsports Press Association Hall of Fame already. Right. right. And, yeah, and, you know, he's he's someone, we were talking about Darlington. He was having a car in the 1950, they, uh, Darlington Southern 500, that, that speaks volumes. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he didn't drive in the Southern 500 in 1950, but he had a car there. And actually, I think he had two cars in that, in that race. And, um, yeah, he was, he's, he had been there for, like I say, I believe it was 863 races he entered throughout his career as a team owner, but just a complete humble gentleman, just somebody that, that you just so love to talk to, uh, all the time. I mean, and there's another quick one that I can share. Uh, and this was with Fred Lorenzen when he was driving for him, I believe in 1970, mm-hmm. you know, Fred had 26 wins as a driver and drove for home and Moody. And he was so quick, so quick witted, Mr. Don Levy was, but it, that was one afternoon. It was late in the afternoon. And, and Fred was one of these very meticulous type guys. He said, mm-hmm. all right. He said, Junie, here's the deal. He said, we can, we can run the car like it is, or we can spend a hundred thousand dollars today and we can finish fourth. <laughs> and <laughs> Judy, Judy, knowing he didn't have a hundred thousand dollars on the car, right. he says, Well, here's the deal, Fred. Since it's so late in the day, <laughs> or I know what he said. He said, We, we can win a hundred, we can spend a hundred thousand dollars to win, win in the car, or we can just run it like it is and finish fourth. That's what he said. Right. And he said, well, since it's so late in the day, maybe we'll just finish fourth. Because <laughs> he knew he didn't have $100,000. And right. he did finish fourth. That's what's so ironic about it. 
Fred did finish fourth. This was at Richmond, I believe. Right, he, right. You know, he never he never raised his voice about anything. He's like he just kind of went with the flow, and that's what I loved about him so much. He was just you know such a cool guy. But yeah, he ran the 1950 Southern 500. That was his first race, and the reason he ran number 90. This is so ironic, is because Tim Flock had driven a modified car that a guy had sold to him, to Junie and his partner, and it had number 90 on it. And the reason the guy sold him the car, he was coming from up north, up in New York somewhere, mm -hmm. and he didn't have enough money to get it any further than Richmond. And he said, I just don't have the money to tow it any further. And so would you buy it for me? And he said, yeah. And I thought, I don't know what they paid, a couple hundred bucks or something for the car. And it had number 90 on it. And so that's the reason that uh, Junie continued, even though this was a modified Dada Cup car, mm -hmm. but he ran number 90 throughout his career from 1950 to 2003 with number 90 on it. And I just thought that is the coolest story because that original race car had number 90 on it and he ran number 90 his entire career. But anyway, exactly. Yeah. We, we this know this is so cool. Let, let me ask you this. You know, um, the thing about Darlington, you know, uh, again, you know, we have the, the throwback weekend this week and that has become one of the uh the biggest promotions and successful promotions uh of any track in nascar probably in the last 25 years in my opinion and it's, it's always good to see you know the paint schemes because they they bring back so many good memories and the thing i also like about that related to the paint schemes is that countless numbers of drivers or, or uh, team owners or crew chiefs or even just team members that were affiliated with the original cars the original car numbers or the original paint schemes back in the day we're talking 50s 60s 70s 80s 90s uh, they show up at Darlington and it's almost like they have a almost like a kind of a, a positive deja vu that they see a car that looks like the one they you know they uh, drove or, or crew chief down or pitted on or what have you. That is just such a cool thing. Do you know off the top of your head, because I know you were president of NMPA for a number of years. Do you know who came up with the idea to have, I mean, first came up with the idea to have the throwback weekend. I mean, anybody is uh, from somebody. I don't right off the top of my head. Uh, no, I don't. It was, I think just a marketing thing with NASCAR, but I, uh, I think it's a great idea. And, yeah. and you know, it, it does, it does bring back great memories for a lot of fans and, and just, it's fun to, to see the old paint schemes, uh, you know, that, that were run for so many years, uh, and, and doing it at Darlington too is so cool because there's so much history at Darlington and who would have known back in the days when, I mean, that's what's so fascinating to me going back to Harold Brasington, he just mm -hmm. wanted to build a racetrack. He had no idea that so much history was going to be uh, generated out of there and so many great paint schemes were going to come out of that racetrack. I mean, off the top of my head, you know, one of the, one of the great races of all time, there's so many, but one of the great races of all time was, uh, you know, when Ned Jarrett won the Southern 500 there, by get this by 14 laps over Buck Baker. I mean, 14, a deficit. Wow. I mean, he was ahead by 14 laps. Wow. And you think, boy, that, that had to be a yawner, but no, not really, because the way, the way, uh, this was 1965 and the way he did it, 
was by he was driving uh, a Ford, number 11 Ford. And um, the way he did it was he would turn the car's engine off in the turns. And he, because he was, he was badly overheating the car's engine and he would, he prayed, he said, I prayed every time I hit the switch because there was a chance it wouldn't fire back because it was so hot. And he did that the last, what, I guess, 25 laps, but he had built such a, a lead, I guess, that he could have honestly gone to the pits and tried to get some help. He had 14 laps to, you know, to nurse the car back to the, to the pit road and get his crew to work on it. And, uh, you know and get the thing running again, but that he won that race by 14 laps, but still it's very, gosh, there's so many like Bill Elliott winning the 1985 mm -hmm. Southern 500 and winning the Winston million. And I'll never forget how much pressure he had to have felt that day because everybody's looking and see, that was what was so funny about that story is that RJ Reynolds put up the money in December of 1984 saying anybody that can win three of the four big races will pay you a million bucks. They didn't have the money. They, <laughs> they did not have it. They didn't have it. And they had to scramble, you know, they wrote the check, gave it to him in victory lane, but honestly, Jerry, they didn't have it. I mean, they had it, but I mean, they had to go, they had to go scramble to, you know, to find it from various accounts and things because they didn't think anybody was going to do it, but he right. won. He won the Daytona 500. He won the Winston 500. He didn't win at Charlotte because he had brake issues. And then he ends up winning the Southern 500. I mean, the odds of doing that is pretty stout, mm -hmm. pretty big against him. And Bill was the guy who was setting up his own race cars and everybody was pulling him left and right. I remember we had uh, publications from all the way out of Australia and Japan that came to that race in 85. And I mean, the poor, the poor man was just had, couldn't get a minute to himself to the point where they had South Carolina highway patrol officers surrounding his pit. Oh, wow. Just to give, yeah. Just to give him time to work on the race car. And I mean, the hype was unbelievable built around. It's a great promotion, but the guy, the executives at RJ Reynolds thought, eh, let's throw this in there and see what happens. They had no idea he was going to win it. I mean, really, and ends up winning the thing. But that one, and I mean, Bobby Allison wins the Southern 583. Uh, they end up cutting a hole in the roof of the race car to get more air uh, in the car. And we talked about a couple of three episodes ago, cheating. And said it was one of those deals. Well, it doesn't say that in the rule book that you can't cut a hole in the roof. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, you say, it doesn't say didn't say we can't and they weren't, you know, NASCAR frowned upon that one pretty heavy. I mean, there's just so many, so many great races, uh, at Darlington, I, you know, and Darlington's very sentimental to me because I saw my first one, as you know, when I was 11, it was the rebel 400 then in April, but I didn't, you know, we usually went to that one and not the Southern 500 for whatever reason, but still Darlington is just a very special place to me. Right. Let's move the timeline up a little bit on Darlington. You know, I'm going to have a confession here. The first time I went to Darlington, I believe it was 2002 or 2003. And I was working for ESPN.com at the time. And I'm, again, and in the, uh, this is no, um, you know, I'm not trying to criticize anybody that was there at the time, I'm not trying to criticize anybody that's there today. But I'll be honest with you, when I walked into that place or drove into that place, 
to me, I it almost I was said to myself, God, this place needs a total makeover. It just it needed so much work in there, and you know it had been that way for a number of years. I mean, sure, when it was opened in 1950, you know, it was the brand new shiny toy, but you know, 60 years or 50 years later, 50 plus years later, you know, it had definitely gotten a lot of wear. Uh, both on the track, but also the facilities, especially the garages. I mean, I remember those. I mean, my God, some of those were in in terrible shape. But to to well, a couple of things that kind of tie into that. You know, NASCAR decided to take away a race from Darlington, one of the two races it had every year, and they'd had it for over fifty years. And they pull it after the two thousand and four season, if I remember correctly, and they gave the second race date to Fontana Auto Club, which which at the time was called California Speedway. It's now called Auto Club Speedway. But the interesting thing then is that when they did that, almost invariably the uh, epitaph or the obituary was being written by so many people that that's it for Darlington. It's going to die. You know, it's it, and, and ironically enough, three years after the NASCAR takes away the race from Darlington, the one of the two races, they decided to put in a major capital improvement uh, program. They had a brand new tunnel, which was incredibly beautiful uh, for tunnels. But they also started working on, you know, the internals, uh, the the you know the grandstands. They, you know, a lot of the areas were uh, replaced. The seating was replaced. They worked on the garages and you know built new garages and uh, it just really spiffed up the place. And they never got that second race date back until. 2020 when we had the COVID-19 pandemic and so many people were just uh you know NASCAR you know was bound and determined to have 36 races and Darlington became their ace in the hole they had three races there and in a way COVID to me in my opinion kind of saved Darlington because you know they drew so many fans especially you know uh, or if they didn't draw the fans you know in person they drew them on TV um due to the pandemic and they want to then, um, you know, it almost gave NASCAR the final convincing it needed to bring a second date back to Darlington. And they had the second date last year. They have it this year. And, you know, God willing, they're going to have two race dates for the, you know, for a long, long time to come. But it just seems that, you know, Darlington was just almost like a forgotten track in a, in a lot of ways. Um, you know, which led to it losing that one race in, in 2004, 2005. And they finally got a race back and in the weirdest of circumstances. And it's so good because now they've got, you know, an inc a really incredible facility there. I haven't been there for a few years, but uh, I do remember some of the changes they made and, you know, the fans love coming there. And, and the irony too has been, and, and I mentioned this in my out of the groove column this week, my trading pain column that, um, you know, NASCAR thought that by taking a race away from Darlington and, and moving it 20 some hundred miles uh, to the West, that it was going to be a huge success at Fontana and, you know, gave Fontana two races a year and it was anything but a success. I mean, you know, the Labor Day weekend race at Fontana, which was essentially the, the race date they got from, from Darlington um, the, the temperatures were, you know, typically in the high nineties, even into the hundreds, Fans did not want to come on a Labor Day weekend, uh, race fans. They, they would go to the beaches. They would go anywhere else but the racetrack. And whereas Darlington was such a storied racetrack and people would come out to that track constantly for every almost every single race there, 
NASCAR, you know, it, it took them quite a while to realize the, you know, and, 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 and you know, it, it was a mistake. Even Bill France did say before he passed away in 2007 that he felt it was a mistake to take that race away, but they thought that, uh, you know, that um, Fontana was the place to go. And in fact, I remember, I don't remember who it was that wrote it, but one of, somebody wrote that it was kind of like the Beverly Hillbillies moving west, you know, taking it out to Beverly Hills to get the success out there and which never played out. I mean, your, your thoughts about how Darlington, you know, lost that race, you know, in 2005, and then how they came about to regain that race in the weird, probably the weirdest circumstances of ever of any racetrack in NASCAR history. Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, uh, Darlington from the day it opened, honestly, it, it was it was a big surprise how great the racing has been there from day one, honestly. And I think it's, you know, it's the fans maybe have spoken, the drivers have spoken. There's something mystical about it. Like I said, from the day the gates opened there and it's something special about it. Um, you know, fate put us back there and I'm just, you know, I, people have asked me, what are you, what's your favorite racetrack? And I'm going to always say Darlington raceway. Number one, mm -hmm. there's something really special to me about it. And the racing's always good there. It's, you know, as we talked about previously in the show, it, it can reach out and grab a driver. Um, and you know, you can, you can race anywhere you want to, but good grief. I mean, the, the history there of the winners that have won there sometimes for the very first time, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's the answer I would give is the uh, people have realized what a great track it is. And I'm just glad that the people that are in charge know what a great track it is. And it's, that's the way it's, it's been for what, 75 years, four 75 years, five years. That's right. This is the same yeah. year or it's come yeah, up. And yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, from the, I mean, looking, looking back, every type of car that you can imagine has raced on the thing. And, and fans just love the place. I, you know, I, I can't say enough good about it. I get cold chills every time I go in the place and I, I'm just glad that we're, we're back and, and I hope it will have a permanent place, you know, just like all these famous baseball fields, football fields. I mean, come on, don't miss, I say, don't mess with, with history and, and it's hallowed ground as far as I'm concerned in NASCAR history. And I just, I don't want them to ever mess with it. Don't, don't break. I mean, don't fix what's stopped broken. You know what I mean? Just stay there. You know, always, that's what I say. Exactly. And the, you know, the fans have, you know, the fans could have very easily have forgotten the place. I mean, especially when the second race was taken away and that, you know, they, they continued to prod NASCAR, Hey, give us our race day back, you know, give us our Labor Day weekend race back, give us the Southern 500 back. And, you know, with all the transitions, the name changes. And then of course the, the, uh, uh, the throwback weekend that was instituted back in, what was it? 2004. 15, I think it was, um, you know, fans have just, you know, not only returned in droves, but new fans have fallen in love with the place. And, you know, it, it's so unique, but I, I wanted to go back to one thing about Harold Brazington, because I just thought about this. You, you mentioned about how he and his father went to Indianapolis in 1933. Wasn't the original plan that Harold um, had in mind 
he wanted to build a track as big as uh, Indianapolis, but because of that minnow pan, pond, and I think also because of um, you know economic reasons, he was essentially forced to build a track that was essentially half the size. Am I right in, the, in yeah, that story? Yeah, it, it is. It was. And I think after he started building it, and he really had no help building it, it was kind of yeah. like his, because nobody believed in him. That's what so you know, satisfying to him, I'm sure when he finally was able to open the gates that, uh, he was pretty much a one man band putting mm -hmm. this together. And it was a, it was a mammoth undertaking. If you can imagine trying to build a one and a half, one and a quarter mile racetrack pretty much by yourself with your own equipment. Uh, he might've had a little help, but I mean, gosh, to think about what he, what he was up against mentally and physically and, and, but I, it was wonderful that he did it. He, he didn't own the track for very long. I think just a few years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think he did run into some financial issues and I think he did, you know, was had to, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to say he had to sell, but he did sell mm -hmm. uh, not long after that to uh, a group that come in and, and bought the track, but, you know, and, there, but I, my hat's off to him because I mean, he, he had everything and I mean, it, the world going against him think about this for a second when you build anything when you're let's say a house for mm -hmm. instance i mean you have to you're up against all kinds of delays and all kinds of things that you didn't realize were going to happen this that and the other and then just multiply that by 100 because you're building a racetrack of all right. things and trying to get zoning and trying to get this fixed and that fixed and and then the first race that they had there on September 4th, 1950, they had all kinds of traffic issues and they had, um, you know, people from all over, they had more than double the, the amount of people coming to the race, which is all well, they'd love that fact, but they had to house them. They had to get them yeah. in. They had to, I guess, obviously had to print more tickets and concessions and all these things that you maybe wouldn't think of for the first one. But I ran across this real quick, and some people might want to know this. There were 12 different makes of automobiles in the field, but not one uh, Chevrolet Olds uh, led the way in the 29 starters. So a Chevrolet or Olds didn't lead any of it. Uh, the rest were Lincolns. There were 10 entries of Plymouths, uh, had nine Mercury's and Ford's, seven each. Hudson's and Studebaker's, there were three each, Cadillac's Jeez. and Buick's, uh, two each, mm -hmm. and Nash, Pontiac, and Kaiser, one each. So those, uh, all, all different types of cars were in that race. And also something else I, I wanted to point out too, the cars didn't come to the racetrack with numbers on them. They were issued to them when they got there. Mm -hmm. So if you, look, if you go back and look at footage of the race cars they were practice practicing uh on the track without numbers on them and then when they got closer to race time nascar put numbers on them or issued numbers to the drivers i thought that was interesting too so and that's the way they did it in the very early days and then later on they allowed them to to establish a number um at the beginning of the year and use the number throughout the year but if mm -hmm. you look at some of that old footage if you can find it the cars were on the track practice, practicing without any kind of numbers at all. And then they put them on later just before the race started. Thought that was interesting. I, I got to go back to one other thing I forgot to ask you earlier. 
Um, how did Na or, uh, Darlington wind up getting the nickname the Lady in Black? I I've always wondered about that. I, I yeah. seem to remember being told it's something maybe 10, 15 years ago, and I just forgot what it, what it was. I, yeah, sure can. I can tell you that. They would put a sealer on the track uh, in the later years. Um, I want to say, well, actually in the early 70s. And it was what they called uh, bear grease is what they were kind of what they dubbed it, mm -hmm. but it was to seal the track, but it also made it a little, a little harder for the cars to pass. And, you know, that's sort of a marketing thing where, you know, you, you get people to come see how the cars would perform on this stuff, but it was actually to seal the track and it made it black on the track. So that's how they called it the lady in black. That's where ah. that moniker came from. And it was, uh, it did. When you looked at the track surface, it looked black. It wasn't really an asphalt, but it was sort of like a sealer that they put down. Mm -hmm. And like I say, it made the made the cars a little squirrely, made it a little harder to drive when it got hot and slick. That's and that's where the the, the lady in black came from. Well, you know, yeah. it, it, Darlington. I mean, it's such a unique track, but it's also, to the best of my knowledge the only track in NASCAR currently, or maybe even uh, of all time that had two nicknames, because not only was it the lady in black, it was also the track too tough to tame. I mean, that says a lot about a place if it has to have two nicknames just to, you know, to, to quantify its, its, uh, its reputation, if you will. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. It's, I'll tell you what, Jerry, there is just, I can't put it into words the right way, but this track is so historic and so, memorable i think if you went to anybody you could go to like a terry labani uh even a dale jr a bobby allison um a ned jarrett anybody and say what would be the toughest super speedway could you name it and what would it be immediately they'd say darlington yep and 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 speaking of terry it's so ironic that terry won his first race at darlington and 1980 and then he won his last race in 2003 at darlington, at darlington and said, right, right. yeah and he even says that's pretty strange but you know some drivers could really drive the place and really do well there like terry and love it and they can't explain why he did so well david pearson had 10 victories there mm -hmm. and he absolutely loved the place and then you had some people that dreaded going to Darlington because it would just, again, reach out and grab you. And you didn't know why Cal Petty even had the quote that what, what should we do at Darlington? And he would always say, fill it up with water and put, put minnows and, and put, <laughs> put brim in it, you know, and fish out of it. He hated the place. So it's just, it's just one of those tracks that you had to concentrate every lap. Couldn't take your eyes off of, of, uh, you know, the, the job at hand every single lap and 367 laps around the place and those old stock cars, what we would run in the eighties and nineties and seventies with the big cars, the Mercury's and the, the big Dodges. And those cars were a handful. They really were. They, you know, they didn't come into power steering on those things until, you know, early eighties. And mm -hmm. man, you talk about a car big as motorhomes and those things were huge trying to wheel those things around a place like Darlington. It's just a fun racetrack. I mean, fun for the fans, not maybe not so much fun for the drivers, but it's, it's a unique racetrack. And because of its shape, because of there's not, I mean, you can't maneuver. You got to pick and choose your places to pass. That's what right. I've been told. Right, right, and right. if you mess up, 
if you mess up, it takes a blink of an eye to mess up and you might take six or eight different cars with you. And it's just a unique place. But Harold Brasington had no idea that he was going to create one of the greatest racetracks of all time when he built it. Exactly. A couple more questions and we're going to put a wrap on this episode of Lifetime in NASCAR podcast. You know, when you, when you think back to, let's say, you know, 15 years ago, 16, 17 years ago, when uh, Darlington did lose that for uh, one of its two race dates, then, and, and this might be a question that might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I, if it does, I apologize. But in your opinion, how close was Darlington at that point to potentially going under in, in, entirely as a racetrack? Because, I mean, you've been there so often. You called your race your favorite racetrack. Ever, I mean, almost everybody in, in, in NASCAR, you know, has great thoughts about it. But to me, there was a point where it looked like its future was significantly in doubt. And now it's thriving like it's never been, essentially. Well, I don't, I don't want to say, I don't think it would have ever gone completely away. I really don't. It may have, let me say it this way. It may have gone away a season, but I think people would have come, uh, you know, the masses would have spoken and said, you got to bring it back. I don't think it would have taken the same route as a Wilkesboro or something like that, because it was, it was always going to be an ISC type track. Mm -hmm. And I just honestly, in my heart and soul, I think the drivers and the fans would have said, what are you thinking? And I think they would have brought it back because of its history and because of its, uh, because of its cool racing on the track, if you will. I just think, I don't think it would ever have a complete demise at all because of just what a historic racetrack it is. And, and I think NASCAR sees what a great track it is now. And uh, I'm, I'm glad to see it's back to two races a year. And it's a, it's an awesome racetrack. I really exactly. believe that. Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. I guess, you know, as we're getting to the end here, we're going to come out of turn four, heading towards the checkered flag. You know, we always like to talk uh, on each episode of the car number that is uh, relates to the episode number of, the, of a Lifetime in NASCAR. So this is episode 62. So we're going to talk about the car number 62. And, you know, some interesting, uh, you know, again, like a lot of cars we've talked about over the last several weeks, not a, a great deal of success with that car, but um, still it has a place in NASCAR history. Tell us about the number 62, Ben. Well, number 62 uh, is one of those numbers that doesn't have a lot of uh, time in victory lane, but it did have one victory. A guy named Frankie Schneider uh, won a 56-mile event at Old Dominion Speedway. It came on April 25th, 1958. Uh, it was the 13th race of the 58 uh, Grand National Series season. Uh, and, of course, Old Dominion Speedway is in Virginia. Uh, but he was driving, what was he driving? I think he was driving a Chevrolet yep. number 62. Right. And it came again on April 25th, 1958, Mr. Frankie Schneider. And then the first time the 62 was used was, uh, again, a car that, excuse me, a car number that was one of the pioneers back in 1949. It made its debut with the number 62. Tell us about that one too, as well. Yeah. A, a gentleman by the name of Lou Folk at the famous Langhorn Speedway, the speedway with no, no straightaways. It was a circular speedway. Mm -hmm. September 11th, 1949, it was the number 62 Buick. He started 34th in that race and finished 10th. Mr. Lou Folk was his name. Right. And, you know, there were a number of guys that 
have raced in that number. Um, most recently, Brennan gone from 2015 through 2020. Uh, Noah Gregson has made two starts in the 62. That was this year, uh, so far this year, uh, at Darlington and Talladega. But also notice that um, Ron Keselowski, who was Brad's uncle, he raced the number 62 for the entire 1970 season and a couple of races more in 71. So, you know, it, it doesn't have a, a, a great history of great winning drivers behind it, but still it's, it's a, a car number that, you know, uh, people, you know, will, will, I think will point to and say, well, I remember this, you know, such and such driver was in this or, you know, uh, a Ron Keselowski or a Brandon Gunn or a Noah Gregson were in that car. So it does have some, um, uh, history to it, if you will. So, you know, it's certainly uh, a, a, a good number We and a good episode. And uh, I guess with that, we're going to wrap up this episode, episode number 62 of A Lifetime in NASCAR. We got episode 63 coming up next week. And uh, I'll, I'll regale you maybe with a, a few of the stories from uh, my exploits down in Miami. I'm heading down there for the Formula One race this weekend. And that should be an interesting experience. You have no idea the things we've had to do in terms of paperwork and COVID restrictions and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, but Ben is always, you know, a great show. Any, any final thoughts uh, about Darlington that, uh, you know, maybe we haven't covered that you might want to talk about. Well, just, uh, just the fact that, uh, you know, we've seen so many incredible winners at Darlington and so many, we've seen some surprise winners, a couple of those, come to mind you know bobby allison won both of the races at darlington in mm -hmm. 1975 driving the american motors matador number 16 uh for a team on roger penske that year and and it's one of those unique cars if you can put it in perspective you know uh, and a, a matador maybe was sort of like the hudson hornet uh, of the, you know, the early fifties racing against the Buicks and the Fords and the Chevys that year, uh, just so unique. I, I was actually at those races that year watching Bobby win in the Matador, mm -hmm. uh, just so many great races there. Uh, you know, one in 1979, Richard Petty battling Darrell Waltrip, they switched the lead something like 20 times or something in the last 20 laps, some 25 laps, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And Daryl Waltrip ended up winning that one. I'll tell you what, if you want to see some great races uh, at Darlington, uh, get on YouTube, look at yep. the 1972 Southern 500. Look at uh, any of those early 70s races at Darlington. They're amazing to watch. And uh, an amazing racetrack with amazing drivers. You, you'll, you'll love some of those old races. Exactly, exactly. Well, Ben, as always, a pleasure talking to you this week on the episode number episode number 62 of A Lifetime in NASCAR, and uh, we're going to have episode number 63 next week, as I mentioned, and, you know, just Darlington, we could probably go another two, three, four hours talking about the place. There's just so much history in that place, and so many uh, personalities have gone through there, and you know, uh, the Darlington Stripe, I mean, is one of the, the classic things in NASCAR that people talk about. I mean, it's like you haven't earned your, you know, if you were a pilot and you were like, you know, flying around Darlington, you would not earn your wings unless you had a Darlington Stripe, so to speak. You know? yeah, so, that's true. So, I mean, it's definitely a place that, um, you know, I'm very happy. And I, I know I mentioned earlier in the episode that, um, you know, when I first came there, I thought the place was in dire need of repair. And now it's become to me a, a shining symbol of what NASCAR, you know, 
when it puts some capital investment into a place, uh, they really help resurrect it and make it a, a shining example of what uh, you know a great racetrack should be, not only today, but also with its great almost 75 years of history as well, too. So, Ben, as always, thank you ever so much for uh, this episode of a Lifetime of NASCAR podcast, and we will catch you next week, everyone, and have a great weekend. And uh, don't uh, don't forget to watch the uh, the, the throwback race weekend uh, this weekend here at our at Darlington Raceway. And so, for Ben White, I'm Jerry Bunkowski. Have a great week, everyone, and thank you ever so much for listening to a Lifetime of NASCAR podcast. Take care. We'll talk to you next week right here. Eric Estep here. This episode is brought to you by Forney Industries. Get it done with green. Forney offers a full line of welding and plasma cutting machines, metalworking accessories, and more. For do-it-yourselfers all the way to professional metalworkers, Forney has everything you need for your next project. Shop Forney's top-of-the-line products at forneyind.com. That's Forney, F-O-R-N-E-Y, ind, I-N-D.com, or at an authorized Forney dealer near you.